Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. We seem to have a bit of a liking on this show for geostrategic writers and thinkers from Singapore. First, we had Parag Khanna, the author of The Future is Asian. A couple of weeks ago, we had Kishore Mabubani, the author, controversial author of Has China Won? And now we have my old friend, James Crabtree. He was the former Financial Times correspondent in India, the author of The Billionaire Raj, which was shortlisted for the Financial Times Best Business Book of 2018. And now he's teaching at the Lee uh, Kuan Yew School at the National University of Singapore. So, James, um, what's uh, what's in the water at Singa- in Singapore? Is everyone there a, 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 ge- a geostrategic thinker uh, imagining what life is going to be like after the coronavirus pandemic? Well, I think everyone in Singapore is hunkered down in their own houses like everybody else, hoping that the pandemic is going to be over reasonably quickly. Um, the interesting thing about Singapore is it started out as a, a kind of golden pupil in this crisis. Um, so we were doing very well amongst the best in the world. And then we had a latterly had a, a, a an outbreak amongst migrant workers. And so now there's been a big uh, shoot up in the number of cases, even in a country as well organized as this. And so that I think gives a slightly pessimistic long term view for other countries as well, that if you slightly take your eye off the ball, then the risk is that you're going to have second, third, fourth, fifth wave infections. That seems to be Singapore's lesson at the moment. So the Singapore model is tarnished. It's not as glowing as golden as some people imagine. Well, Singapore was right up there in the in the A League with Taiwan and South Korea, Germany, New Zealand, and and I think now Singapore has the most cases in Asia of anywhere outside of India and China. Um, and so it's a funny situation because amongst the regular population, so Singaporeans and regular expats, almost nobody has it. But amongst the male migrant workers who live in dormitories, there's been a huge explosion of cases. So it's a little bit like one of those cruise ships you had in the San Francisco Bay, that there's this hermetically sealed population of migrant laborers who have a terrible outbreak. And then amongst everyone else, it's it's perfectly fine. What about the outward view from Singapore? Uh, you've been there, what, three or four years? I think I last saw you in, in, in India as your stint there was coming to an end. Do you think living and teaching in Singapore gives you a, an interesting perspective on this new world, this new early 21st century world, which is increasingly Asia-centric? I think so. I mean, you had both Parag and Kishore on your show, um, and, and so both of them in their own way represent Singapore as this nodal point in the era of globalization. It's one of the ultimate global cities, has an incredibly high ratio of trade to GDP, Singapore came to represent everything that was possible in the old era of globalization. So one of the interesting things about being in Singapore is watching the country 
and the elites here and elsewhere in Asia begin to grapple with what the coronavirus is going to bring in terms of an acceleration of trends towards deglobalization and some of the nastier uh, trends that you talked about with Anne Applebaum recently, the, the rise of um, populism and nationalism, um, even more so probably than we, we had it before. Uh, I mean, I, I I had a chapter in my last book, How to Fix the Future of Us, on Singapore, and some people were a little critical. They thought I gave them a little too easy ride on the absence of democracy there. Uh, what, in, in your mind, has been the impact uh, of the coronavirus on the existence of any kind of democracy in a, in a, in a, in a, in a technocracy like Singapore? Has contact tracing apps and contact tracing technology is this the beginning of the end of 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 democracy in a place like singapore no i don't think so i mean singapore does have a functional democracy it's just one where one party has won every single time since the country was independent Um, but it does have a multi-party democracy and it has elections that are free and fair i i think the difference is more that that some of the uh, civil liberties that really vex people in the West, um, both in the Anglo countries and in countries like Germany, people worry about much less here. So there's no real um, anxiety uh, amongst the, the kind of mass population about things like contact tracing apps um, and the privacy implications of coming with that. Um, and so in some of the more successful East Asian countries, not only do you have the fact that Taiwan and South Korea and Singapore have built very competent governments now, clearly in many ways more competent than those that they were previously inspired by in America and the UK. Um, but also there's just less concern about uh, hard protections for civil liberties. And so something like contact tracing, if in the Singapore government decided that they were going to make a contact tracing app mandatory as part of their attempts to normalize the situation. I mean, I think people would accept that um, without too much complaint, uh, as long, particularly as long as it was temporary and until things went back under control. So so I, I, I don't think it's the end of a form of democracy, but I think that this is a different kind of democracy that you have here. And in some ways, it has been one that has made it slightly easier to fight the pandemic. We're on a podcast, so I can't see your face. I can't tell whether you were smiling when you said Singapore is a, is a democracy. It just always elects the same party. Um, we had Shoshana Zuboff on, on the show a few months ago, of course, the author of, of the big hit of last year, Surveillance Capitalism. Do you think that surveillance capitalism has found a natural home in Asia, in places like Taiwan and South Korea and Singapore, let alone China? Well, I think there's a, there's a danger that we think of these Confucian democracies as in some way uh, different. Whereas if you read Shoshana Zuboff's book, I mean, predominantly, she's talking about Western companies that have been the tools of uh, this kind of surveillance capitalism. So, you know, Google and Facebook, and uh, they are the the engines that suck up all of this data. Now, China is a specific case. Um, China clearly is a, a kind of surveillance authoritarian society. Um, but it's not immediately clear to me that, that the kind of problem here is always government surveillance. Um, often, uh, um, most of the problem here is with the, the companies, that, and many of whom are Western companies who are very good at sucking up all of this data. So, so I think, you know, if you look at South Korea, for instance, it's been very successful in the way that it's fought the pandemic. And at least part of that has been the way that it has been able to share data around its government system um, from mobile phone records, 
uh, to other forms of public data that have allowed you to spit out maps that show where people who have had the coronavirus have been walking around the streets and that kind of thing. That hasn't been possible in the West because you have tighter restrictions on data. But I don't think it's quite the case that somehow countries like Taiwan and South Korea are some kind of Blade Runner style nightmare. I don't think they're that different really from from where you are in in Western countries. So James, uh, what is the view of China from Singapore, at least your view uh, to to borrow uh, Kishore's title of his book, has China won or is China winning because of this crisis? I mean, I think it's a very difficult question to answer. On the one hand, China has done relatively well out of this crisis. And so it cements a view, particularly in this part of the world, that in a sense, China is the rising power and we better all get used to it. Um, so China had the virus earlier. It has coped with it better. It will bounce back sooner than um, everybody else. And while you do see a big pushback now, not just in the United States under Trump, but also in most countries in Europe and also in places like India uh, against China and in a sense a kind of popular anger at China for having been to some degree the cause of this, you see that less in Southeast Asia simply because China is so close. And I think people recognize that you have to play nice with China in this part of the world. There's no sensible future in which China is your your enemy, um, or rather there's nothing very good that will will come from that. However, you know, so China does relatively okay, particularly because it's handled this crisis so much better than the US. But China's system still has huge long-term challenges. It's still a relatively poor country. It has an aging population. It's politically unstable. We don't really know how angry the Chinese population is at their leaders for what's happened. So I think people saying China is going to come out of this smelling of roses are, are maybe being a little bit presumptuous. At the very least, China still has a heavily export-driven economy. And if the rest of the world collapses, then it's very hard for China to restart its economy at all. And so there's lots and lots of weaknesses. If I was Xi Jinping, I'd still be very worried about the precariousness of my position, even though compared to the US, I've handled this crisis relatively well. Mm, well, you're leading me into my next question about the U.S. You mentioned Anne Applebaum, who, of course, wrote a very influential essay in The Atlantic about the way in which the crisis reflects the fundamental dysfunctionality of America. What's the view of America from Singapore? And again, your view, James, does it? Do you agree with that, with Anne Applebaum? Does the failure, it seems, the, the, the seeming failure of America to confront the pandemic uh, in America itself, does that reflect the, the breakdown of America? I think looked at from East Asia, there's a mixture of bewilderment and disappointment at what's happened in the U.S. and the way that the U.S. system that has been so widely admired appears to have completely flunked this challenge. Um, disappointment because people expected more and bewilderment, particularly in a country like Singapore, which thinks well of America and has very strong ties with the US and um, has a lot of circulation between its military, its educational elite. You know, people admire the US here. And so to see this country that you had admired under Trump being unable to, uh, not, not just unable, but to handle the situation so chaotically gives people no great Pleasure, and I think Kishore is right about this. That it means that a lot of the the kind of moral leadership that America had is going to be lost in in this part of the world. 
in some ways, the I think Anne Applebaum has made this argument as well. America from this part of the world looks increasingly like an emerging market. Um, it has institutions which don't work very well. It appears increasingly to be run by one family um, in with with a lot of colonialism. It has rising levels of corruption. It has very poor infrastructure. Um, and, and so you you see this kind of emerging marketization of America. And, and I think it means that people are going to, you know, look to the U.S. as a leader in fewer and fewer areas. So people will still admire its university system and its Silicon Valley elevation model, some of its sectors, its financial clout, the value of the dollar, or rather the centrality of the dollar is perversely getting greater rather than less because of this crisis. But the notion that America represents an entire social and economic template, I think, that has taken a real hit during this crisis. It's interesting that you describe America as an emerging market because uh, you have a recent foreign policy essay entitled The End of Emerging Markets, which I want to come to later, but perhaps that suggests also the end of America. Um, So much to talk about, uh, uh, James. Uh, Let's get on to India because... As I said at the beginning, you, you've authored an extremely good book, the, the Billionaire Raj, about the new India. You, you spent six or seven years as the FT correspondent there. What's the takeaway? And I know you're in Singapore, so you haven't spent much time in India recently. But in your mind, uh, is India having a good crisis? What, what is the, the takeaway from the coronavirus crisis in India? It's a very paradoxical takeaway. So on the one hand, India is having a good crisis. People thought that it was going to do disastrously badly. And there was an awful lot of worry that India would be the next center of the epidemic. Um, as of now, it's done okay. So when we're talking has about 42,000 cases, 1,400 deaths, which is not nothing. But given the weaknesses of the Indian system, you know, its vast teeming slums, its poor government, its rickety healthcare system, a lot of people thought that it would be much, much worse. And so there's various theories as to why that is. Narendra Modi, the prime minister, locked down the country quickly. It has a young population, so it has fewer elderly people who are vulnerable to this. But it's a bit of a mystery as to why India has done so well so far on the pandemic side. I think a lot of this, unfortunately, may turn out just to be um, a, a facet of having no testing capacity whatsoever, and a, maybe a little bit of luck. Um, but in the medium term, even if India manages to avoid the worst of a big pandemic outbreak uh, you know, of the sort that we have had amongst Indian people here in Singapore... The economic outlook for India, I think, looks really very grim. Um, Its growth rate is going to be negative this year. Um, It's going to find itself in a trying to become a richer middle-income country in an era in which there's going to be no forces of globalization to help it. It can't roll out the kind of public spending or unorthodox monetary policy that you find in Western countries. Its room for maneuver is very limited, and it has this huge population um, who are poor, who need to work to eat. And so if you have extended lockdowns, as India is on an extended lockdown at the moment, and if you have more of them in the future, then the prospect for social anger and social unrest is is very real. So, So I think India's position is weirdly better than many people expected, but still in the medium term, very challenging. And would you include India as an emerging market? 
Absolutely. I mean, India, in a sense, embodies the thesis that you mentioned that in this essay that I've written for Foreign Policy magazine, um, in which I argue that, in a sense, that one of the things that will die off after this crisis is the very idea of an emerging market. So for maybe, you know, you imagine Thomas Friedman's book, The Lexus and the Olive Tree, and he talked about the, or the world is flat, he talked about the donning of the golden straitjacket that emerging markets, if they just did what they were meant to do, then they could ride the wave of globalization and grow at 8, 9, 10%. And I think that era, if it wasn't already dead after the financial crisis of 2008, is clearly dead now. And, and so that means a country like India, which at the moment is a, a kind of poor, lower middle income country, but really wants to become a, a middle income country and make rapid strides to becoming a rich country in the way that China has done, is going to find that much, much more difficult. It's going to be very hard for India to, in the future, sustain the kind of 7 or 8% growth rates that it has averaged over the last decade or more. So the global system will, be, will reflect... Uh or mimic the, the inequality in domestic systems between the rich and the poor worlds. And I assume your, your prognosis about, or your prediction about the end of emerging markets is particularly bad news for Africans. Yeah, I mean, I think it's bad news for almost any country that was hoping to kind of have itself pulled out of poverty by global forces. If you think about what happened before the 2008 financial crisis, a lot of countries managed to hitch their their wagons to globalization, particularly China, and grew very, very rapidly. That was true for commodities exporters, oil exporters. It was particularly true here in, in East Asia, where you had this magic development model that, in, that focused on investment in infrastructure and exporting industry, manufacturing exports. This was your ticket out of poverty if you were first Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, but then also Indonesia, Malaysia, Taiwan, Thailand. And India had been hoping to do something similar. It's much harder to do that in an era in which you don't have the following wind of globalization behind you and in which you have you know, crashing commodity prices, um, less demand from the West, a whole, whole bunch of different um, forces, some of which have been true since the aftermath of 2008 and are merely being accelerated, and some of which are clearly going to be new after the coronavirus, that there's going to be less international travel, less tourism, a whole bunch of other things until at least for the, you know, for the foreseeable future. The end of globalization then, James? Not the end of globalization per se. I mean, I think globalization is going to go into decline, albeit from a relatively high base. Um, I mean, what, what's basically happened is we had this era of what they call hyper-globalization, which ran until the financial crisis. And it sort of plateaued after that, but it's only dipped down very gradually. If you look at a company like Apple, I mean, Apple is a famous exemplar for globalization. Although we've been talking a lot about deglobalization and reshoring of jobs, actually, Apple hasn't moved that many jobs out of China so far. But I think it will now begin to do that. I think lots of companies are going to diversify their supply chain, they're going to move some production, if not back home, then closer to home. And so while I don't think you're going to see the collapse of globalization, you are going to see the decline of globalization, more regional production, more local production, more virtual production. Um, and that's just going to make life harder for um, for emerging markets, because it, it just means that there's less of that um, that pie that they can compete for.
James, I thought you were going to cheer me up, and you haven't. You, practically everything you've said is bad news. So finally, cheer me up a little bit. What book or books should people be reading as they're stuck at home during the crisis? I hope you're not going to suggest anything too miserable. <laughs> I don't. I don't mean to be that. I don't mean to be that miserable about it. The book I would recommend that people read is Hilary Mantel's new novel, *The Mirror and the Light*, which is about um, Thomas Cromwell, the, uh, uh, the, the 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 right-hand man of Henry VIII, the third in the trilogy, um, which I have. Um, in a sense, been looking forward to tucking into as my pandemic um, distraction. If you want something on the on pandemics itself, I've just been. It's pretty dark. Though. Uh, Helen Thompson had also suggested that it's a dark book as well, isn't it? Well, it's they're all dark. I mean, I suppose, but this is politic red in tooth and claw. They're, they're, it's a magnificent trilogy. It's not particularly original, given how um, how uh, how widely lauded these are. If you want something on the pandemic itself, then the Yale historian Frank Snowden has just come out with a book called um, Epidemics and Society, which is, a, a again, because it's about the subject matter of pandemics, it's not exactly uplifting, but it goes from the, the plague of Justinian through the Black Death and cholera and has all sorts of interesting insights on the way in which societies handle pandemics um, both in their positive effects, and they do have some positive long-term effects, but also in their divisive effects. So I, I think his book is a is a nicely written uh, introduction to the the big two thousand year history of this. It's but probably more um, more interesting in some than the books on the the Spanish flu, for instance. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.